We're going to look this morning at Luke chapter 1. Would you turn there with me? Luke chapter 1. During these next few Sundays, uh, the Advent season and on the Sunday after Christmas, um, we are going to stay in the Gospel of Luke, just looking back at uh, elements of the birth narrative that Luke recorded, believing that as we're studying the book of Acts and as Christmas season approaches, it's appropriate to stay with the same author and just uh, hear a bit earlier in the story. Really, we believe that Luke and Acts are volume one and volume two of... um, Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ in the early church. And uh, so, really, we're just going back a little bit earlier and uh, picking up volume one to, uh, to look at over this season and to prepare our hearts for Christmas. But even as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we are preparing them for something grander yet than just the memory of the birth of Christ. We are looking forward as well to his return, and as I've said already, we will uh, make much of that this morning. We're going to read the text that we're looking at this morning is actually just the encounter with the angel in verses 11 through 17 of Luke 1, but I'm going to read verses 8 through 17 just to get a little on-ramp into that encounter. Let's pray, and then let's listen to the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we entrust to you now our time together this morning, and we pray, Lord God, that you would be present by your Spirit, enabling me to speak your words faithfully, enabling this body to hear your words responsibly, to receive them into their souls and to allow your word by your Spirit to accomplish your work in each and every one of us for your glory, for the building of your kingdom, and for the magnification of our deepest satisfaction in you, Lord God. That is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to the word of God. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him, to Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and feared. Fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people for the Lord a people prepared. So reads the word of God. Aslan is on the move. 
Do you recognize the words? They're the words of Mr. Beaver to the Pevensey children the first time that all four of them had landed in Narnia. Maybe Narnia has special emphasis to us this morning. Second mention today. Due to the spell of the white witch, it had been winter in Narnia for a hundred years. Always winter, but never Christmas. Remember that description? Just think about that. But Mr. Beaver had said it. Mr. Beaver had said, Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And the narrative goes on, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew Aslan any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning. Either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and always are always wishing you could get back into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. I think all of us know that feeling, right? If you had that from time to time, we might think it's a feeling that we can only get in a dream or maybe in a fantasy world like Narnia. That's the only place where you have that kind of experience, right? But as we mentioned just a few weeks ago in our study of Acts, when we were talking a little bit about the writing of J.R.R. Tolkien, the best fantasy, he said, has a bit of reality in it, blurring the line between the worlds and making fantasy seem really possible. That's what fires our imaginations when we read it. That's what draws us in. And we get drawn in when we hear that Aslan is on the move. I need to say two things here. First, I think this statement excites us because it's already happened in the real world. I think this is the place where the line blurs between fantasy and reality. The line excites us because it's already happened in the real world. And second, if we were to hear such a statement anywhere in our world, Aslan is on the move, if we were to hear a statement like that anywhere in our world, today's text is the place, I believe, where it happens. But first, a little bit of introduction to Luke chapter 1. Today is the second Sunday of Advent, marked by the lighting of the second candle in the Advent wreath. Advent, as you know, means coming or arrival. It means appearing. It's the Latin translation of the Greek word that might be a little more familiar to some of you, even though it's Greek, parousia. The New Testament word that refers to the return of Christ. 
So it's a word, Advent, that spotlights the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And it spotlights his coming, whether we're talking about his incarnation in Bethlehem two millennia ago, or whether we're talking about his promised return at the end of this age. Advent captures both. During Advent season, then, we're preparing our hearts for the celebration of Christ's first coming as an intentional exercise that will help us to prepare our lives for his second coming. That's why we mark these Sundays as a body of believers. During Advent, we're preparing our hearts for the celebration of Christ's first coming as an intentional exercise that will help us to prepare our lives for his second coming. We've read this morning from Malachi chapter 3, not in the Advent reading, but in the word of assurance that we heard. We heard from Malachi 3 about the purification of God's people that will be accomplished when, with the coming of the messenger of the covenant, Malachi records, the coming of the messenger of the covenant into the temple of the Lord. And this messenger of the covenant, as you look at Malachi chapter 3, is God himself. He says, through the prophet, a messenger will prepare the way before me. And later he adds that this messenger that comes before the appearance of the messenger of the covenant in the temple, this messenger will be Elijah. That's Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It's followed by verse 6. After identifying him with Elijah, Malachi goes on to record, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. Sound familiar? And the hearts of the children to their fathers. Intergenerational faithfulness. A theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. A theme that captures our imaginations from passages like Deuteronomy 6, where the older are told to teach the younger about the ways of the faith and what it means to walk with God. Intergenerational faithfulness will be restored through the ministry of the forerunner who prepares the way for God himself to come as Messiah, namely for Jesus to come to Bethlehem. Luke records that arrival. The arrival of this messenger is imminent. That's what today's text is about. The messenger that's going to come and prepare the way for the Messiah who's going to deliver the salvation of God. The coming of that messenger is imminent. Zechariah, in this text, is a priest of the division of Abijah, we're told in verse 5. And we're not in the outline yet, still introducing this, still getting, getting ourselves up to speed here in Luke 1 to appreciate an Advent message. Zechariah is a priest of the division of Abijah, and his division is now serving at the temple as Luke tells this story. Verse 8, during one of their two weeks per year, as we read about in history, two weeks per year, different divisions of priests would have been on duty, and Zechariah has been chosen by lot to clean and refresh the most holy altar of incense. That's his duty. This happened twice a day, morning and evening, according to Exodus chapter 30. Now, 
There were about 18,000 priests serving in Israel in these days, as we're able to tell just looking back and reading a history of those days. And according to the Tamid section of the Mishnah, a priest might serve at the altar of incense only once during his lifetime. And the sheer number of priests that were working at that time would tell us that not all of the priests would even get to do it once in their lifetime. The privilege fell to them by lot, verse 9 tells us. By sheer chance, then, from a human perspective, right? It fell to them by lot. They drew lots, and whoever was selected performed the duty. Sheer chance from human perspective? But Proverbs chapter 16 says the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So ultimately then, this isn't a matter of sheer chance that Zechariah is on duty at the altar of incense on this particular day. It wasn't by lot that Zechariah was serving in this role at this time. Not by lot as humanly understood, but it was by God's sovereign appointment working through the means by which he identified his selected servant to do this work on this day. And Zechariah was likely pumped up beyond words by this opportunity. Just because the specialness of this particular calling. The people were praying outside, we're told there in verse 10, as was customary at this hour. Perhaps praying for the deliverance from the occupying forces of Rome, just as they'd prayed for deliverance throughout their history as a nation. Quite likely, they were also praying for the coming of Messiah. That was a common theme in the prayers of the people outside the temple wall during the ceremony of incense. And while they were doing this, while they were likely praying for the coming of Messiah and for the deliverance of God, Zechariah was inside the temple refreshing the incense that, according to Scripture, symbolizes their prayers. Again, this would have been an indescribable moment. Surely the crescendo of Zechariah's priestly ministry and perhaps of his whole life happening right now, this moment. And then something happened. Let's see what. And here we move into the outline that's there for you in the bulletin this morning. We're going to unpack today's message in two parts. You see, first of all, God's stunning message through his special messenger, and then to the message we should hear from him today. It's really just walking through the text and then seeing what it might have to say to us today on this second Sunday of Advent as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the birth of Jesus and in so doing prepare ourselves for his return. So first, God's stunning message through his special messenger. Zechariah was doing his work here, deeply focused on fulfilling each of his responsibilities, I'm sure, with, with precision and with dispatch. An angel suddenly appeared, standing on the right side of the altar. Imagine, quiet, alone in there. And suddenly an angel appears at the right of the altar. The altar of incense was at the far end of the holy place, centered in front of the double veil 
that separated that room from the Holy of Holies. So this is as close as any human being except the high priest would ever get to the Holy of Holies. Zechariah is standing there at the altar of incense, and the angel appears. Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him, not surprisingly, right? He, had to, it, it, he was struck with terror as the angel appeared. Verse 13, the angel then said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Common greeting from an angel. And that had to help at that moment. Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Those were the next words. That likely helped as well, but I'm sure as Zechariah's mind was racing, the question was, what prayer? Was he praying right then at the moment? The angel continued, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call his name John. Now, this is out of the blue. This is out of the blue. I am pretty confident that Zechariah's mind was not on their childlessness at this advanced age while he was exercising the pinnacle experience of his priestly life there cleaning and changing the altar of incense. I doubt Zechariah was praying for a son right there and then in the temple, performing his high, high priestly duty. Now, I think the angel was answering a longer-standing prayer. Zechariah might have been praying for presence of mind. Zechariah might have been praying for, for God to guide him and direct him so that he doesn't mess up this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Zechariah was wrapped with what he was doing, and now there's an angel telling him he's going to have a son in his old age. I'm guessing that Zechariah and Elizabeth had stopped praying for a son sometime back. As you can see there in verse 7, they were old, advanced in years, and she was barren. But the angel says to him, don't fear, your prayer has been heard, and you're going to have a son. There's also likely more that Zechariah could have been praying about along with the people outside. There may have been an even greater focus of their prayer, anticipation of the deliverer, the one whom God had appointed as a Savior and promised His coming, the anointed one, the Messiah, that almost certainly was a focus of at least the prayers of the people, if not the prayers of Zechariah as well. Eloquent storyteller that Luke is, he has tied this scene in Israel's life to Herod's reign in verse 5. Herod's reign, a nagging reminder of all that isn't right in the land. Their hundred-year winter, that's what Herod's name conjures up. But for them, it was much more than a hundred years winter. Their struggles go back a millennium and more. We won't survey Israel's history of occupations and exiles and at least... They were in the land at this point, but they were still under the thumb of Rome, and oh, for the deliverance that God had promised. They were hungry for it. So do you think the request wasn't on the lips of 
all the people outside who were praying at the hour of incense. This is the time where God hears our prayers. This is the ceremony that symbolizes our prayers. God, send your deliverer. Would almost certainly have been on their hearts. This was the grandest prayer for a faithful Israelite to pray during these days. What Malachi spoke with irony to Israel of his day was perhaps the truest prayer wish of these people in this day. Malachi 3, 1, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And the people on the wall outside the temple would have said, Amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But in order to answer it, in order to answer that prayer, God is first going to have to send the messenger that he promised would prepare the way for that one. Isaiah spoke of this same messenger. Isaiah 40, a familiar verse. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That thought finishes with, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. God will hear and answer that prayer. This forerunner, this herald of the coming Messiah was a necessary player for God's plan of salvation for his people to be accomplished. And he is the one with that special assignment that we already referred to from Malachi 4. He is the one who will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers just as Malachi recorded. And when Malachi finished writing those words, he laid down his pen and the Old Testament was finished. That was the last word written in Israel's Bible. These were the closing words of the Old Testament scriptures and indeed of the whole Old Testament era. Once they were written, there followed more than 400 years of silence from heaven. No prophets, no revelation, just quiet, just quiet and anticipation. The prayers of his people at the hour of incense, week after week, Year after year, decade after decade, now century after century. Again, it's like the opening of the seventh seal in Revelation 8. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour, Scripture records. How long is a half an hour of silence in a timeless place? Might it be 400 years or more? And then, then, here. Chronologically, the next thing that happens, we miss it a little bit because Luke is the second book of our New Testament, but it goes back and tells the same story as Matthew, and it gives more of the birth narrative of Jesus. It gives more detail than any other gospel with regard to the life of Christ. 
So chronologically, this is the next thing that happened. This is what broke the 400 silent years. The appearance of the angel Gabriel to Zechariah in the temple, right in front of the Holy of Holies, as he was tending to the altar of incense. Here, the angel Gabriel brought the very words from heaven that are recorded in Scripture, and they're they're essentially the same words that we heard close Malachi's prophecy. When your son is born, Zechariah, verse 14, you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, echoing some vows, but not a clearly identifiable one, something unique for John. He'll be set apart, though, for God's purpose throughout his entire life from his, very, from his mother's womb until his death. And then right on into verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Similar to Malachi's words, but different in some ways, clearly drawing together aspects of that whole prophecy into a final bottom line statement. But here, the messenger that comes before the Messiah is identified as Elijah, and Jesus himself tells his disciples later on in this very gospel, if you're willing, John is Elijah. But we see his, we see his work to tar- turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And then we expect to hear and of the children to the fathers, but we don't. We get a poetic and gloriously descriptive phrase that captures much of what Israel was failing to do in the days of Malachi the prophet. Not only were their prayers empty and they were just going about the motions in the temple in those days, but their hearts were turned away from the poor and the needy. And the compassionate and merciful heart of God was not being made known through the experience of his children. So we hear here, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. The coming of this herald then is now at hand. The forerunner of Messiah is at hand. Aslan is on the move. God's long-promised long-desired deliverance is arriving. Advent. The advent of the servant, the Savior, the King is coming. Nothing less could account for the joy and rejoicing that this birth will bring. This was the stunning message from the special messenger that was sent to Zechariah on that day. So what should we hear from him? And here we'll transition and just put the story into practice. What should we hear from him today? My friends, we should hear two things primarily, two things. 
we should hear that the aim of God's whole saving plan, the aim of his whole saving plan is to make ready for himself a people prepared. That's what he's doing. He's initiating that through this forerunner who will pave the road, so to speak, on which Messiah will walk. And that road is paved with the repentance and faith of the people of God. That's what John was calling for. That's what he was preaching, to make ready for God, make ready for the Lord, a people prepared, ready for Jesus' return, so reconciled to God that they're, they're reconciled to one another. That's the hearts of the Father and the hearts of the children. It's hard to know what that text means, but at very least it means a reconciliation between them. Their hearts are for one another. So reconciled to God that they're reconciled to one another across generational lines. That's where that intergenerational faithfulness word comes from. Responding to his call to the point of reflecting his heart of wisdom and justice and righteousness. Turning away from the petty selfishness and short-sightedness of relational division and conflict. Perhaps that which has different age groups, parents and children, defining righteousness differently to the point where they're separated from one another even as they pursue it, both pursue it. Isn't that a strange thing to think of how many in this world, in the church, pursuing righteousness yet defining it differently so that our pursuit of righteousness actually divides us. That's the kind of thing that will be remedied when Messiah comes. In fact, his forerunner will bring that message. Separated from the short-sightedness of standing by ignorant and unmoved, at the sin and injury of injustice that so saturates this world. Hard-hearted in the presence of human suffering. Failing to grasp, now listen, failing to grasp the tragic incongruities of seeing such desperate need represented among God's image-bearing creatures. such that desperate need among them, seeing it right there in the presence of God's sovereignly chosen people. That's the world we live in, a sin-torn world. Here, I'm not talking about religious persecution any longer, even though that sound is familiar in our ears from our study in the book of Acts. I'm talking about the suffering that results from living a godless life in a fallen world. The suffering that we do see represented all around us. The suffering that quite possibly might be more discernible in an affluent, prosperous area like our own than it even is in a country where no one's life is marked by privilege. But the unique form of suffering and injustice that is so much a part of an affluent society where people suffer under the weight of their own aberrant desires while salvation is available to them in the name of Christ all along. And we as the church can get used to that and not even notice it. I'm talking about the suffering that results from living a godless life, pursuing selfish, self-gratifying aims as though this life is all we have. 
And our satisfaction is up to us. That's the sort of suffering that we confront daily to which the gospel is the answer. And yet we can get used to it as though it's just part of life and forget the solution that God has provided. When a people are made ready for the Lord, when they're a people prepared, they reflect the wisdom and depth of God's love love as ones reconciled to him by repentance and faith. They reflect God's love and God's value in the world. And their disobedience is displaced by the wisdom of the just. There's the language that Gabriel used. This passage, my friends, this passage is challenging us first to enter into this salvation. The salvation that's promised and proven real by the intervention that God is announcing through the angel to his priest right here and right now. The intervention that God is announcing through the same angel who had announced the birth of Jesus to Mary just a few verses later in this chapter. The intervention that God is announcing through the same angel who also some five centuries before revealed parts of this same plan to the prophet Daniel when he was exiled in Babylon. This is our calling. We're called to enter into this salvation and to be so transformed by it that our our relationships reflect it right into the core of the family. And our hearts are so reconditioned by the heart and mind and eyes and ears of God that we reflect an understanding of the need of this world and a heart for justice and righteousness, two words that come from the same root, a heart for justice and righteousness that can only be captured by the word wisdom. That's the fruit of this salvation that's being announced on this day. That's the first thing we need to notice in answer to our question of what message should we hear. The second, being ready for the return of the Lord ourselves is not our only aim. Being ready for the return of the Lord ourselves is not our only aim. So being transformed into his likeness in these two ways that we just talked about is not the only thing that this is about. Any more than it was the only aim for John. John was set aside, set apart for God. He was was made who he was for the purpose for which God made him. And that purpose was to be a herald of Messiah, right? So it wasn't John's only aim to be transformed himself in his own life. He was proclaiming this message, and the same is true for us. Right along with him, it is also our aim to call people to repentance and faith in preparation for the coming of the Lord. Now we're talking about his second coming because his first has already happened. But we're living in a similar kind of tension, looking forward to the fulfillment of a promise and the arrival of the Son of God. We're looking forward to the advent. 
We have the privilege of being heralds of this good news, the very good news that has this transforming effect on us. And what a privilege that is. And the good news is that as we unpack this calling through the pages of the New Testament, we see that this message that we are called not only to embrace by faith in repentance, but then to proclaim along with John that this message as it roots itself more deeply in our hearts, it roots more deeply each and every time we share it, each and every time we proclaim it. It's truer and truer to us, further up and further into the gospel. Every single time we proclaim it, we get to be ones who share it with those who don't even know the name that Aslan is on the move, that Jesus is coming. We get to share this message with those to whom this name is strange, or to whom it's filled with different kinds of content. We get to speak it to those in whose heart it might strike terror the first time they hear it. And we get to proclaim it to those who are strangely warmed by it when they hear it. Jesus came once to make provision for the removal of our sin in fulfillment of the promise of God to do so. And now, he's coming again, also in fulfillment of a promise to do so. And this time, he will deliver our salvation fully and finally, bringing us into his new heaven and new earth to live in sinless celebration. Hear that. To live in sinless celebration of the greatness of His glory for all eternity. Do you long for that day? My friends, that's why we're lighting the candles. This isn't some ritual. This is a reminder that light has come into the world and illumined the darkness. We are recipients of that light, but we're proclaimers of that light. Has it? double impact in us, just as it did in John. The next time Jesus comes, the advent to which we are looking forward, the advent which we are preparing ourselves for, even as we look forward to a conscientious celebration of the birth of Jesus, when that comes, full and final delivery comes the breathtaking descriptions of Revelation 21 and 22 become a reality before us. The setting in which the light and momentary afflictions of this life pale away and melt in the presence of the greatness of the glory of God, that is what awaits us on that day. That's the message we get to share that's the message that has done something in us and turns around and does something in our world. That's the only thing that can address the crushing weight of the oppression of sin in this world. And we have the message. Why do we prepare ourselves? Oh, so that once embracing it by faith ourselves, we will not be silent 
when it comes time to pass it on. Jesus came to make provision for the removal of our sins the first time. And when he comes again, he will deliver us into his glory. As we do these things, as we are proclaimers of his message, as we embrace it by faith and then share it with those who hear, as we enter into the salvation that is ours by repentance and faith in Jesus, and as we proclaim this salvation to those who have not yet entered into it, the truest joys of Christmas begin to descend in even deeper ways on our own hearts. The celebration takes on a whole new meaning. It's not just now an opportunity to get or to get together. It's something far more fundamental and basic in our walk with Christ. The joy of reconciled relationships, thanks to the cleansing work of him whose birth established Christmas. Just wisdom, displacing selfish disobedience as the defining description of who we are. These, my friends, are the joys of Christmas. These are the joys of Christmas. This is what is going to fill people with joy as they hear of the birth of John and then of the one that he has come to proclaim. These are the joys of Christmas. So my question to you this morning is, have you received them? Have you received the joys of Christmas, the joy of of knowing reconciled relationship with God that reconciles you right on out to the very edges of your relational network and then gives you the joy of proclaiming that very reconciling message yourself. Do you know the joys of Christmas? Join me in prayer now if you would and take just a moment in silence to address that question. And as we do, I'm going to ask the musicians to return to the platform and those serving communion to join me at the front. Then we're going to remember what was accomplished in order for us to know these joys. Let's pray together. Silently first, and then I'll lead us. Heavenly Father, it is our longing to know you. As we enter in for just a few moments to the experience of Zechariah the priest there in the holy place on that day of his visitation, Lord, our hearts are stirred at the message that is shared that day and what a dramatic impact it would have had on the lives of the people and what a dramatic impact it did have as we continue on in this text of Luke 1. Heavenly Father, I pray that that impact would not be lost on us today, but that we might know the joy of which Gabriel speaks to Zechariah here. The joy of knowing that God is on the move, that his salvation is being accomplished, 
and that it will be fulfilled, that the promises that you have made all will be realized by the people who trust in the salvation that you have provided. But, oh, Father, what it must have been like when theory became practice, when ideas became realities, and when the word came from heaven, okay, now. Oh, Father, we live in a world where God has said, okay, now. Enable us by your spirit to enter into all that means. Enable us to trust in Christ. And even as we remember his death in communion now, Lord God, may we remember it as that which transforms us into your likeness and gives us a message to share in a desperately needy world. In Jesus' name we pray.